Good morning, and welcome to Water Church again. My name is Tim. I am the campus pastor here. One church, three locations, Norwood, North Attleboro here in, in Taunton, Massachusetts. Special welcome to all of you on this bright and sunny day. You loving this weather? Yeah, it's about time, right? Good to have weather like this. And you could be at the beach right now, but you're here. And for that, I'm extremely thankful. John chapter 13 is where we are going in the, in the Bible today. Uh, discipleship part uh, three or four, depending on last week. I think it's actually part four. John chapter 13, one announcement before we get to the message today, uh, that this Wednesday night is first Wednesday. Don't miss first Wednesday. See, it is a phenomenal time. We pray at 6 o'clock, we worship at 7 o'clock, the word at 7.30, and we invite you to come on out, especially if you call this your church, and this will be the last first Wednesday until September, the last first Wednesday until September. We'll take the summer off and we'll pick it up back up in the fall. All right, John chapter 13, we're going to look at the quintessential definition of a disciple. We've been talking in this series about how we're not called to be Christians, we're called to be disciples. And we're not going to try to wipe out the name Christian from this church. We're not asking to do that, and we're not asking to put down anybody who says they're still a Christian. That's, that's not the argument. The point is, is that Jesus never defined Christian, but he constantly defined disciple. Jesus never defined Christian, but he constantly defined disciple. And if we're going to be disciples, we got to find out what does Jesus say a disciple is. And this chapter in John, this verse that we're going to look at, is the quintessential verse that defines disciple for Jesus, and hopefully uh, by the end of this series, uh, our church as well. Because we don't want to just know about Jesus, we want to live like Jesus and obey Jesus. Amen, somebody? So John chapter 13, I want to give you the context. He's in the upper room with the disciples. He's just washed their feet. They've shared the Last Supper. Uh, we all know about the painting by Mac Michelangelo. We, the Last Supper, this is that moment. He's washed their feet. He said, you got to drink this cup. you got to eat this bread in remembrance of me. And now here's what's happening. Jesus knows he's leaving. He knows he's going to the cross. He knows he's about to die for the sins of the world. And the disciples have no idea. They don't know what's up. They didn't know what's up most of the time that they spent with Jesus. They constantly didn't understand him. And now, tonight, the last night that they are together in this situation, they have no clue that he's going to die in a few hours on a, on a bloody cross, and they're going to be left alone. And he's going to tell them, I'm leaving, and I'm, where I'm going, you cannot come. So let's pick it up right there in that context and understand what's about to happen. Here's what it says. Verse 31. 
when he had gone out. Now, that he there is Judas. Judas has just left the room to go get the dispatchment of soldiers and hand Jesus over to the Roman authorities. So when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, check this out. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, just as I said to the Jews. So now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Where I am going, you cannot come. You have to imagine that the disciples were a little bit shocked by this statement. They had followed him closely for three years. They always wanted to be around Jesus. Being around Jesus was the highlight of their lives. And they had spent three glorious years watching him raise the dead, heal the sick, multiply bread and fish for thousands of people, walk on water, turn water to wine. Jesus was constantly doing something cool. And he was teaching like nobody else. He was teaching things that they had never heard before. When all the people left Jesus in John chapter, uh, Luke chapter 6, I'm sorry, John chapter 6, the 12 disciples stayed and said, Lord, we can't go. We love what you say. You have the eternal words of life. These guys stuck with Jesus through thick and thin. When the authorities hated Jesus, they were with him. When people turned on Jesus, they stuck with him. When everybody questioned and doubted Jesus, they put their faith in him. And now Jesus is saying, I'm leaving, and you can't come. Man, that Peter must have been shaking his head. John and James looking at each other funny. What is going on with this guy? And then he gets real serious with them. Just as he tells them, I'm leaving. Look what he says in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you. A new commandment I give to you. Now, Jews loved their commandments. Back then especially. They were all about commandments because their God, as opposed to all the gods of the pagans, their God gave them commandments. Moses went on the mountain, got the ten uh, commandments on the two tablets of stone, came down. They were written by the hand of God. They loved their commandments. They not only had their ten commandments, they had 613 other commandments. And they loved to know what God desired of them because, think about it, every other God of every other pagan culture, they, they didn't know. It was a guessing game as to what God wanted. But their God had given them the exact code as to what he wanted from them. And now Jesus, who they believe is the Son of God, he's going to give them a new commandment. This is like Moses in the mountain and meeting God and getting a commandment. They're like, oh, we can't wait to share this new commandment. What's it going to be, Jesus? What's it going to be? Raise the dead, heal the sick, overthrow Rome. What's it going to be? We want that commandment. Bring it. Bring it, Jesus. And here's what it is. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, by your love for one another, shall all men know that you are my, say the word with me, disciples. 
this is going to be the litmus test for the world to tell them you are following Jesus, loving one another. I imagine that at this moment the disciples are like, huh? Really? That's, John, can you believe that love one another? <laughs> you know? Really, Jesus? That's it? We, we were expecting something a little bit more exciting than just loving one another. Because if I was to be honest with you, I can't even stand these guys most of the time. <laughs> you want me to love them. <laughs> and, 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 and you know that the disciples didn't get it because here's the sequence of events now. Jesus has told them, I'm leaving, you can't come. A new commandment I give you, love one another. Look at the very next verse, Peter. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? <laughs> we want to know. Let's get back to that thing about you leaving. We want to know where you're going. And Jesus says, you can't come. You'll follow me later, but you can't come right now. Love one another. A lot of Christians want to know, when is Jesus coming back? A lot of Christians obsess about the book of Revelation. You can turn on TBN or any kind of Christian programming, you'll find somebody telling you about when Jesus is coming again. And we like to examine the times, and we like to look at who's out there on the world stage and say, okay, there he is, Antichrist. There he is, Obama, right there, Antichrist. <laughs> Clear as day. Now, you know, it's like it was Saddam Hussein at one time, remember? Before Saddam Hussein, some people thought it was Ronald Reagan. I mean, we're all, who's the Antichrist, and when's Jesus coming, and he's coming in May, and he's coming in August, or, or if you add the numbers of June 5th, 2016 together, it comes out to 666. I don't even know how you do it, but you come up with these things, right? And Jesus is coming back on June 5th, 2015, so everybody get ready. And Jesus is like, I don't want you to care or worry about when I'm coming back. I want you to love one another. I want you to be so compassionate towards each other. I want you to be so caring toward each other. I want you to be so immersed in serving one another and making sure each other is coming along in faith. I want you to be so close and so tight-knit that other people from the outside will look at you and say, I might not believe like they believe, but there's no denying those Christians love each other like nobody else on the face of the earth. And this is, this is the litmus test. This is it. I want you to love one another. And, and people, uh, listen to me. This commandment was not new. The disciples probably were like, love one another. Jesus, that's as old as Leviticus. <laughs> Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. So Jesus, this is not new. What, what, where, do you, where do you come off saying this is a new commandment? Let me show you what makes it a new commandment. It's the six words after love one another. And the six words after love one another are what? Just as I have loved you. If you have a paper Bible and you don't mind marking it up, would you circle the word as in your paper Bible? <laughs> or on your notes, you can put it there. Just circle the word as. That's the qualifier that makes this commandment different from Leviticus 19, verse 18. Because Leviticus 19, 18 says, love your neighbor as what? As you 
love yourself. So how you treat yourself, I want you to treat other people. That's a good commandment. But Jesus, Jesus elevates it. He says, look, I want you to love each other, but I don't want you to love each other in the way that you love yourself because even the way that you love yourself falls far short of the way God loves you. Even, even those of you who are obsessed with yourself. You know, you just can't get enough of yourself. And, and you, you think the world of yourself. Can I tell you something? God loves you more. That should humble you. He loves you more than you love yourself. And he loves you perfectly. And, and Jesus says, the way that I have loved you, 12... I want you to love each other that way. And when you do this, listen, it's not by how great you can preach. And it's not about how many demons you can cast out. And it's not going to be by how many buildings you can build, how many denominations you can have, how many theological presuppositions of the incarnation of Christ you can create. It's not about quoting chapter and verse. It's not knowing about your Bible inside and out, although you should know your Bible. And it's not about going through religious duties in and out, in and out, all these things, these sacraments and these ordinances and all that stuff. Here's the defining principle for the world to know that we are disciples of Jesus, that we love one another just as he loved us. So the question becomes, how did Jesus love these guys? And when you look at the life of Jesus, you get a real clear picture of what Jesus' love is like. Uh, if you're taking notes, I put this in your notes. You fill in the blanks. Jesus' love is not sloppy sentimentality. Because we're good at that. Christians are really good at being sloppy sentimentalists. How you doing? Good to see you. Love you. Fist bump for Jesus. <laughs> right? We will have knock out, dra knock down, drag out fights in the car on the way to church. Hating each other. Would you kids shut up? I'm going to pull this car over. And I'm going to spank you until your, pee your pants fall off. Arguing each other. I didn't like your mother anyway. Your mother always bugs me. And all the way into church. And we get into the doors of church and we're like, how you doing? Good to see you. Love you. Good. Oh, I'm doing great today. How are you? Yes, yes. This is my lovely wife. I wanted to kill her five seconds ago, but now she's in church. <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and that's what we call sloppy sentimentality. Um, now, listen to me. If you do that, and you do put on that face and you stop fighting when you come into church, let me just be clear, we appreciate that. <laughs> we would like you to keep that going. <laughs> but, but there should be a place, there should be a time where you can take the face off, the mask of your, I've got my Christian act together and say, you know what, I stink at some things. Can you just listen to me for a moment? That's real love. That's the kind of love that Jesus exhibited. Because Jesus saw people at their worst and loved them the most. The woman at the well. 
five times married, five times divorced, and living with a guy now. And he says, I'm the living water that you're looking for. You know that love that you're trying to find in all these men? You know that love, that acceptance, that approval? That's me. He didn't say to her, what is wrong with you? This is why, see, this is why people don't want to talk to you because you're just full of junk. No, 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 no. He talked to her, and she was a Samaritan, and she was a woman, and he saw her at her worst and loved her the most. And that's the kind of love that Jesus wants from us. Love that gets its hands dirty with sinners. Because uh, sinners are dirty. Amen, somebody? Anybody know a few sinners in the house? Okay, anybody one of those sinners? I can't believe how many liars we got in the house of God. (laughs) We got to get our hands dirty. And Jesus did. And I want to look at four ways, and they all end with the word up. Four ways in which Jesus practically loved these 12 guys, okay? Taking notes, number one, he gave up. He gave up his rights as God. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 says that he gave up his, his place in heaven that he had eternally with the Father. Do you know that Jesus was never, uh, he, I'm sorry, that Jesus never started He has been God from eternity to eternity. He was with God in the beginning. John chapter 1, he was the word of God. In Colossians chapter 2, it says that all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus and through Jesus. Jesus is the entire presupposition of all that we know and see. He has always been there. And he gave up all that, that perfect harmony with the Father. Emptied himself, the Bible says in Philippians 2, emptied himself, become a servant, and was born in a humble manger as a man, and was raised by a poor carpenter and his wife, and died on a bloody cross, and borrowed a tomb for three days. He gave up everything for us. Second Corinthians sums it up really well. Second Corinthians 8 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, somebody say he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. Jesus gave up. We asked you to join a small group. I ask you today, if you're not in a small group, join a small group. Now let me tell you something. Joining that small group, you're going to have to give up some stuff. You're going to have to give up your comfortable couch and lazy boy recliner and your 55-inch HDTV and go to somebody's house or a picnic or here at the church on Wednesday night. I think they have the Wednesday night, Thursday night, whatever, and be involved. And it is going to require you to give up. That's love, and as Jesus loved. When you give up your comfort, when you give up your house, when you give up your time, and some of you, you have given up time to be a small group leader and has given up energy and, and, and time that you could be putting into other things for your house or for your life, and you're giving that up every single week. Why? Because you're doing what Jesus said. You're loving as Jesus loved. You're giving it up. You give up your finances. You support this church financially. You're giving up. 
You're giving up your time today. Good beach weather. Here you are, suckers. <laughs> You're here giving up right now. That's wonderful. And just exemplifying what Jesus did for us. There was a time when Jesus' best friend and cousin and predecessor had been beheaded, John the Baptist. When John went into prison, Jesus started his ministry. Jesus was about a year into his ministry when John was beheaded by a cruel, evil, narcissistic king. And when Jesus heard that John had been beheaded, Matthew chapter 14 tells us that he withdrew from the people. He wanted to be alone. Uh, when you lose somebody close to you, you know what this is like. I just want to be alone. I don't need to be around people right now. I just need time. And that's exactly how Jesus felt because he was 100% God, but he was 100% man too. And he withdrew, and, and here's what happens. The crowds found out about where he was. They followed him on foot from the towns, and when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and this is right after he learned his cousin was dead and beheaded and he knew that soon the cross was waiting for him too and he just wanted to be alone and he saw the crowds and here's what it says. He saw them and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. In the midst of his weakness, in the midst of his absolute desire to just get away from everybody, he saw them and he felt compassion and he gave. Jesus was constantly giving up even when it wasn't convenient. Number two, he showed up. If you're taking notes, he showed up. Now, um, Jesus is Emmanuel. That means God what? God, Emmanuel means God with us. He is there. He put on flesh, as it says in John chapter 1 in the message version, that he moved into the neighborhood. He came to be with us. And, and all through his ministry, he was constantly showing up for people. There was a time when a Roman centurion, a Roman centurion came to Jesus and said, Jesus, my servant is at home and he's sick and he's dying. Will you come and will you lay your hands on him and will you heal him? This is a Roman centurion. This is not a Jew. This is a Gentile, a Roman, and a centurion. And their job was to basically subjugate these Jews under Roman authority and Roman rule. And one day soon, a Roman centurion would take a nail and thrust it through his hand. And Jesus looks at this Roman centurion and he says, I'll come to your house and heal your servant. He showed up. He showed up for everybody who needed him to show up. We got to show up for each other. Loving as Jesus loved means that you give up and you show up. Now, <clears throat> good little praise report for our church. Good little praise report. We have had, I told you this, this series was about small groups. We're going to try to bump that number 25% up higher, much higher. And we have had in the past three weeks, 100 people sign up for small groups in this church. That's good. Yeah. That's good. Got a long way to go. Got a long way to go. But let me just tell you something. Those of you who signed up. For small groups, signing up is the easy part. It's the showing up, the rubber hitting the road there, right there, where you're like, oh my gosh, I signed up. Now I'm getting emails from this guy. Oh, man. I didn't know they were going to take it serious. <laughs> Pastor just wanted me to sign up. I did that. I mean, come on. 
Isn't that good enough? No, no, we want you to show up. We want you to be there. Now you say, look, why, 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 why is this so important? Here's why it's so important. The first thing that Jesus did when he began his ministry was he formed a small group. That's the first thing he did. If Jesus Christ needed a close relationship with like-minded brothers, you better believe you do too. He needed it. You need it. I need it. We need people that we can come into fellowship with. And this church is far, far too big to let that happen on a Sunday morning. So we get out of our houses and we come and we show up and we, we share life together. And we do it one with another and we minister to each other. And, I, and I'll be the first to tell you that it's going to take time for these relationships to develop. Somebody say time. It's going to take time. The fir- Let me just be clear, okay? The first couple times you show up is going to be awkward. I don't know these people. And pastor says he wants me to open up. I ain't opening up to anybody here. I don't like him. <laughs> She's weird. And this guy running it, I don't know what he's talking about. He's all, you know. All right, first couple times, it's going to be like that. But give it a chance. And you come back the next week, and you come back the next week. And, and eventually, you start to find friends. You start to find relationships that matter. Because the same things that you go through, they go through. And not just that, but sometimes it's just good to have friends who are like-minded in Christ. Because you go to work, and there's nobody there that talks about Jesus. Or you go... Um, you know, to the baseball game or wherever, and there's, or you go to school, and there's nobody that talks about you. And you need somebody. I need somebody who will talk to me on my level, going through the stuff I'm going through. So he gave up, he showed up, and number three, he spoke up. Now, this is what we really want to see happen in our small groups. Uh, love speaks up. Love speaks up. Jesus loved the disciples enough to tell them the truth. And this is where the Christian church in America is falling far short. Because here's what I see in American Christianity. American Christianity has been whittled down to just be nice. Hasn't it? Just be nice. So we put on this fakeness and we gloss over stuff that we really shouldn't. Why? Because we want, we want to be nice. The world wants us to be nice. The world wants us to be ni- good people. So as long as we're not upsetting anybody, and as long as we're not saying what actually needs to be said because it's actually in the Word of God, then at, at least we're doing our job. No, sometimes love isn't nice. Sometimes love is straight. Sometimes love is you are drinking Drano. You are an idiot. Stop it. Right? Like we, today's Christian said, oh, you're drinking Drano. Oh. I don't like Drano personally, but I mean, you know, who am I to judge? Matthew 7 says, do not judge. So drink Drano. You know, <laughs> that's not what Jesus did. Jesus was straight with people. One time he said to Simon Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Like, could you imagine that? (laughs) 
Like, what are you talking about? Who's Satan? Where is he? No, you're Satan right now. You're being instructed by Satan, and I command you, get behind me. Straight. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, the people who thought that they had it all together, Jesus was like, hey, you guys, you guys who think you got it all together, let me tell you something, you're sons of hell. <laughs> sons of hell. That's exactly what he called Matthew chapter 23. You're like whitewashed tombs who people paint over, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. Yikes. I get a kick out of these people who say, I just love to go to lunch with Jesus one day. I just love to go to lunch. We could go to Starbucks. Have some lattes. I mean, really? Because he'll tell you the truth. He will be as truthful. And by the way, it's the truth um, that love rejoices over. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the great, the great love chapter, one of, the, one of the phrases is this, love rejoices with the truth. Love loves the truth. And, and, and sometimes we just need the truth. And so he, uh, number one thing about speaking up, love verbally instructs people. Love verbally confronts people. Love verbally says, hey, you are drinking Drano and it's not good. Here's what it says in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6. Uh, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but an enemy multiplies, or profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Um, uh, a, a friend wounds you faithfully and cuts you where you need to be cut so that you can straighten up. Um, Timothy was a young pastor in a city called Ephesus, and Paul instructs him to, to confront some people. And he says this to Timothy, he says, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia to stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. He says, Timothy, there are some people, they're jacking up other people's faith, they're, they're teaching stuff I don't agree with, I want you to go to those guys and I want you to command them, stop teaching that rubbish. Now that's hard to hear. And I'm sure Timothy was like, ah, oh. Yikes, I don't want to confront these guys. Because Timothy was timid and he was kind of like shy and bashful. And he says, nor to devote themselves to myths, endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. And look at verse 5. The goal of this command is love. Sometimes love is just being straight. I've wrote, I read this quote this week. Um, love biblically understood is rooted in the truth, measured by the truth, and conforms to the truth. So that we understand there are some things that we need to hear. And we don't like it, but we need to hear. Secondly, love verbally empowers people. I think about when Jesus met Peter, and his name was Simon when Jesus met him. And the reason why we call him Peter is because the moment that Jesus met Simon, he changed his name. The very first thing he did, he said, you are named Simon, but I'm going to name you Peter. What's significant about that? The name Peter means rock, steady, strong. He says, hey, Simon. I call you rock when you first met him. Now you look through the gospel records and, G and Peter is anything but a rock. Am I right? He's like questioning things, doubting things. He's walking on water one moment. He's sinking in the next moment. He's, you know, got to be rebuked at one moment. He's constantly speaking out of turn. The Bible says one time when Jesus was transfigured um, on the mountain that, that Peter says, this is good. Let's, let's build shelters. And the funny little phrase says, because Peter did not know what to say. He was always saying out, things out of turn. He did not look like a rock. But Jesus empowered Peter with a new name. And we all know the rest of the story. When the Holy Spirit got a hold of Peter, he changed, and he became that rock that Jesus saw three years earlier. 
How many know that words empower people? Let me ask you this. How many know that, that words can destroy people? And I guarantee there are some here, you've been more destroyed by words than empowered by them. You know how Jesus loved? He empowered with words. He empowered with words. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 18, 21, the tongue can bring death or life. The tongue can bring death or life. What do you bring into your family? What do you bring into your wife? What do you bring into your husband? What do you bring into your children? What do you bring into your small group? Bring life. Where is it? Right here. Right here. Watch what you say. Empower people. Hebrews chapter 10, 24. I love this verse. Let us think of ways to motivate one another. Let us think of ways. That we can motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another. And especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Love empowers with words. Uh, love, thirdly, verbally prays for people. Jesus was always praying for his disciples. Even when Peter was about to deny Jesus at the Last Supper, he says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times that you know me. And you're going to deny me in the worst of my moments. He says, I got it covered though, Peter. I prayed for you. I already prayed for you. So that when you come back, you strengthen your brothers. He prayed for them. We want you to pray for one another. But how can you pray for one another if you never know one another? Here's what it says in James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. And what? What's the word? And pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. That there's a power to our prayer not for a new TV and not for a new car and not for a new job. Look at the context of the verse. He says the power of a righteous person's prayer is in the prayer for another Christian. So we pray for one another. That's what small groups should be doing, getting together and praying and then following up. And you, sometimes you're going to show up a small group and you just find out my, my, my wife just got the report. She's got cancer. Can you pray? We'll pray. I just lost my job. They just cut me loose. What are we going to do? We're going to pray for you. We're going to pray together so that we can support one another and love one another and empower one another to live what God wants us to live. I don't know about you, but I love it when I find out that people are praying for me. We got people, some, some nice ladies over there in the offices right now. Do you know what they're doing? They're praying for us right now. Praying for you to hear the word of God. Praying for me to preach the word of God. That's good news. Praying for one another. We pray before Saturday nights at 420 to, right before the service, and then we pray after second service. We cover our weekend with prayer. Why? Because we want God's word to go into your heart and change your life. Pray for one another. All right, back to our main points. Fourth, he served up. So he gave up, he showed up, he spoke up, and lastly, he served up. And this John chapter 13 verse where he says, love one another as, as I have loved you, and by this shall all men know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Do you know what he had just done? I said it earlier in the message. He had just washed their feet. The Lord of creation got down on his hands and knees, took sandals off of fishermen and tax collectors, <laughs> took a bucket and towel and washed their feet. The lowliest position in the house was the servant who would wash your feet when you came in because it was dusty and dirt 
everywhere you went in Palestine. And your body could remain mostly clean, but your knees down, they would be dirty from the dust. Jesus did this for those 12 guys, and, and check this out. One of them was Judas. That's crazy. And he gets up and he says, what I just did for you, I want you to do for each other. Now, we don't wash feet in this church. And I think that you all agree that we don't want to do that. <laughs> but what that does mean, what that does mean is that we're willing to do anything for each other. Love in the way of Jesus is not sloppy sentimentality. That's what I want you to hear. It's real. It's gritty. It gets its hands dirty. It's hard work. But if we're to be really honest, we all need it. And that's how the world is going to know. That's how the world is going to know. Not by our buildings, and not by our gifts, and not by our music, and not by our talents, and not by our cafe and our coffee. The world's going to know that we are his disciples, Jesus said, when we love one another. Now, I said a lot, but let me be real clear, and I say, say this as honestly as I can. There's a catch to all of this. There's a catch. And, and those 11 guys in that room, because Judas had already left, those 11 guys, let me tell you something about those 11 guys. After Jesus said these words, you've got to love one another, let me tell you something, none of them got it. None of them got it. Do you know how I know? Because he gets arrested just a few hours later, and they all book. They all run for the hills. Peter's going to deny him. And even when he rises again, Thomas is going to doubt him. And even when he ascends to the heavens, the Bible says in Matthew 28 that they still doubted. They still doubted. They were, there was no love in their hearts. And here's what's the reality. That if you and I were to be really honest... We know, we know that there is no way a natural person can love another natural person the way Jesus loved us, right? We don't got a prayer at doing this in our own strength because there's a catch. In order to love one another as Christ loved us, we must be born again. That's it. When Jesus rose from the dead, he breathed on the disciples. He said to receive the Spirit. At that moment in John chapter 20, they became born again. And then through the Spirit being empowered into their bodies, they were able then to love one another. In fact, Acts chapter 2 starts with the Holy Spirit descending on the church. And it ends with everybody sharing everything. But happy, you can't be a loving, loving Christian like Jesus was a loving person until you have the Spirit that was in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit has to come in you. You have to be born again, not of flesh, but of the Spirit, and learn that it is by the empowerment of that Spirit that you love people who you normally wouldn't love. And Peter, who was there that night, was the, was the one who finally caught it one day. And he would, years later, years later, he would write an epistle to other Christians. And he said this, 
in 1 Peter 1.22. He said, you were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. So now you must sincerely love each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other. What's the word? Deeply with all your heart. Verse 23. For you have been born again. You can't do this. You understand? Everything in this message you cannot do unless you're born again. I want to close with a story about two airline, two, two pilots, two, four, two fighter pilots from the Second World War. It's a true story, I guarantee you. The first airline pilot was a, or fighter pilot was from the America's Army. His name was Jacob DeShazer. When the bombings in Pearl Harbor happened, Jacob DeShazer swore to himself that he would kill as many Japanese as he possibly could. He was enraged with the bitter hatred of the Japanese people. And he was one of the pilots who volunteered for the very dangerous and risky Doolittle Raid. How many remember the movie Pearl Harbor? Right? You get two hours of a love triangle that you wish you didn't see, and then you get like 10 minutes of actual war footage. And it ends with the Doolittle Raid, which actually they believe turned the tide of the war. It was a very dangerous mission. He signed up. He recounts in his life about how that was a happy day for him, dropping those bombs over Japan, killing as many Japanese as he possibly could. And while he was doing it, his plane ran out of fuel, as was expected. And he couldn't make it to the safety zone, and he had to parachute out over enemy territory, and he landed in Japanese-controlled territory, and he became a prisoner of war in a Japanese prison camp. And he was there for 40 months. 24 of those months, two years of that time, he was in solitary confinement. Tortured, beaten, and starved. He watched three of his friends be executed by firing squad by the Japanese. He heard his other friend, his closest friend, starve to death in a cell next to him. And he knew that he was so enraged with hate and his death was coming. And he knew he couldn't go out like this. And he would later write a pamphlet. And the pamphlet was called, I Was a Prisoner of Japan. I want to read to you from that pamphlet. It's an amazing story the very words of this man, Jacob DeShazer. He said, soon after my friend's death, I began to ponder the case of hatred between human beings. I wondered what is it that made one people hate another and what made me hate them? My thoughts turned toward what I heard about Christianity changing hatred between human beings into real brotherly love. And I was gripped with a strange longing to examine the Bible to see if I could find a secret. I begged my captors to get a Bible from me. Finally, in the month of May, 1944, a guard brought me the book, but told me I could only have it for three weeks. I eagerly began to read its pages. Chapter after chapter gripped my heart. In due time, I came to the books of the prophets and found that every writing seemed to focus on an eternal, divine redeemer from sin, one who was to be sent from heaven to be born in the form of a human baby. I was so fascinated by their writings that I studied them. This is the Old Testament now. I studied them six times over. Then I went into the New Testament and I read about the birth of Jesus Christ, the one that the prophets actually wrote about so many years before. 
He says, on June 8th, 1944, the words of Romans 10, verse 9 stood out boldly before my eyes. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That very moment, God gave me grace to confess my sins to him, and he forgave me all my sins and saved me for Jesus' sake. I soon discovered that God gave me a new spiritual eyes so that when I looked at my enemy officers, I found that my bitter hatred for them had changed to loving pity. I realized that these people didn't know Christ. I read in my Bible that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And from the depths of my heart, I prayed for God to forgive my torturers, and I determined by the aid of Christ to do my best to acquaint these people with the message of salvation. That's his story. Eventually, he was released from that prison camp. He went to Bible college in Seattle to become a missionary. He graduated, and he went back and became a missionary to the people of Japan. And he would spend 30 years of his life preaching to Japanese people. Now the second pilot that I want to talk to you about was Japanese, and his name was Mitsuo Fujita. Mitsuo Fujita always dreamed of being a military commander and a military hero. And he was the commanding officer in the attack on Pearl Harbor. He led it. And by the way, he was the only officer who returned to tell about it. He became a celebrity in Japan. He said he was more adored than the emperor himself. He said that the attack on Pearl Harbor was the happiest day of his life. He hated Americans that much. Then the war ended. And he would also go on to write a book. And I want to read some words from his book. He says... With the war ending, my military career was over. I returned, returned to my home village near Osaka and began farming, but it was a discouraging life. I became more and more unhappy, especially when the war crime trials opened in Tokyo. Though I was never accused, General Douglas MacArthur summoned me to testify on several occasions. As I got off the train in Tokyo, I saw an American distributing literature. When I passed him, he handed me a pamphlet, and the pamphlet was called, I Was a Prisoner of Japan. In that pamphlet, he read Jacob DeShazer's testimony, and it gripped his heart. And he knew he had to experience the same peace that Jacob had experienced. He couldn't live with hate anymore. He got himself a Bible and he poured over the scriptures every single day until the day that he came to Luke chapter 23, verse 34, and the prayer that Jesus prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He said at that moment, I met Jesus for the first time. I understood the meaning of his death as a substitute for my wickedness, and so in prayer, I requested him to forgive my sins and change me from a bitter, disillusioned ex-pilot into a Christian with a purpose for living. April 14th, 1950 became my new best day of my life, the day I became a new person in Christ. And the rest of the story is this, that these two opposite pilots who dropped bombs on each of their enemies and hated each other's people with an intense hatred. Do you know what happened? They met up and became best friends. 
And they traveled around Japan together, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with as many people as they could. When Matsuo Fujita died in 1976, Jacob DeShazer was there. And there's a New York Times piece in 2008 from when Jacob DeShazer died. And it shares about how Jacob showed up at his deathbed. And he says, in that piece, he says, I saw him just before he died. And we shared in that good and wonderful thing that Christ had done for us. You can't love as Jesus loved until you're 